This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. And for a full year, we've been looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels put together in one chronological flow. We are nearing the end of the year long study of Jesus' life, Ben, and we're coming to the place now where Jesus is arrested and goes before several people on trial. It's a long night, Thursday night, leading into Friday morning of what we know as Holy Week, his last week on earth before his crucifixion and resurrection. And here we're at Thursday night when he's celebrated the Last Supper and then been out with his disciples and done some teaching and praying. And now we come to the place where he's arrested and sent away on a variety of trials. I think I like to look at it in three parts. One are the religious trials. Another are the civil trials. And the third one, which is I call the friendship trials, when those who were his closest allies turned on him in one way or another. So we'll look at some trials. Now, like, you ever been part of a trial or a jury duty or, uh, you know, you were a judge in a former life or I don't know, anything like that? <laughs> Yeah, actually, crazy enough, I have been selected for jury duty October 19th um, to practice some civic virtue and go participate in that, uh, not begrudgingly. But right before I moved to Indiana in 2002, I was selected for a jury trial uh, in a carjacking. It was actually the sentencing phase of the trial that I was selected for. And I was set to leave, uh, to move from Dallas, Texas to, uh, to Greenwood, Indiana. I was set to leave that week and I pleaded with the judge, like, you got to let me out of this. I got a moving van coming to my house or coming to my apartment on Friday. I need to be done. This was on Tuesday of that week. He's like, oh, you'll be done before then. And of course, you know, Thursday evening, finally the, uh, we as a jury concluded, and my poor wife was left all week with some friends of ours to uh, pack up our uh, our apartment. But a fascinating uh, trial, yeah, it was a carjacking. It should have been cut and dry. Everything was on videotape on the uh, police officer's dash cam. But some things that sometimes seem cut and dry, Mark, aren't. So you weren't one of like the of the twelve angry men, so to speak, that was um, throwing a wrench in it and delaying the the judgment of the jury because no. you needed to uh, get the moving man going. <laughs> I, I was the voice of compromise between they should get time served and they should uh, be sentenced to 25 years. And I was like, look, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and so if I have to, uh, if I have to play the centrist here and move everybody together to get them to coalesce around a, a specific time, that's what we're going to do. And so I think we settled on, on 10 years. Uh, but it, anyway, yeah, fun times. So the deal is, um, I wonder if these guys that were, were the judge and jury for Jesus that night, were just wanting to expedite this thing, get it going, get it, get it done with at least some of them along the way. So, uh, all the listeners, you can just insert the name Ben Greenbaum for every time you hear it with somebody that's trying Jesus tonight, Caiaphas or Annas or something. No, is that not? That's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair at all. And so Jesus gets arrested. In fact, we'll 
we'll, we'll pick that story up in, in John, and then we're going to switch over to Matthew, then to Luke, because, you know, the, the story has kind of different narrative all over the Gospels. And let's take a first a look at a couple of the religious trials. It, were, it, was, it was because Jesus did not measure up to what the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted of a religious leader in their day that he was in such hot water. I think the Romans would have ignored him, that the civil authorities, they didn't really care. He, he didn't seem to be bothering them, it, it seems. But it was the religious community who had quite a bit of power in the day who wanted to go get them. In John chapter 18, verse 12, we pick up the story where it says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. So you got a couple of groups at play there. Detachment of soldiers is probably from the civil side, the Roman soldiers, as well as the Jewish officials, and this would have included the, the temple guard, probably. I don't know exactly how that would have played together, but they arrested Jesus. They bound him, it says, and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So Jesus gets brought to this guy named Annas, and it was, being a high priest was sort of a family business. And they were appointed by the civil authorities, by the Roman government, in order to be in charge of the religious community of of the Jewish people. They always came from the Sadducees sect, and they were in it together. So the, he first gets Jesus first gets brought to Annas, and Annas is called the high priest because he had formerly been a high priest. So kind of like we talk about a former president and we use the term president. I, that's how I take it at least. Verse, verse 19, we're still in John 18, now verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So he, he just asks him. Then Jesus replies, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. The first of his punishments were coming. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus replied, if I, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? So Jesus first appears to this guy, and he's, he's a little bit contentious with him. He, he's saying, look, who are you? I've been out in the public. I've been doing things. Like, Why are you coming at me so much? Now, Jesus had just been arrested. He, he probably could have played, been a little bit more conciliatory or played along with it or whatever to be released, but he's, he's not doing that. He's kind of getting in the face of Annas, and for that he gets his face slapped. So to talk a little bit about like what Jesus is doing here as his first stop along the trial path that he's on for the night. Yeah, there's, a, there's two things I'd say 
in response to this piece of the the narrative, one, Jesus goes willingly is they come to arrest him. Uh, though, you know, Peter, I think as we talked about last time, uh, Peter strikes one of the servants' ears, Malchus's ears, cuts it off. Jesus instead uh, heals the ear. He doesn't rebel against his arrest, but has entrusted himself coming out of the garden, really giving himself over to the will of the Father. He goes uh, willingly as they come to arrest him. He doesn't, he doesn't fight back. Um, the other part of this, too, is, is, is Jesus making the point, I think, to them, um, maybe not in these words, but he, he wasn't trying to foment some, you know, rebellion in some sort of smoke filled room. Uh, but he has really, in essence, been bringing the light into the darkness from the standpoint that everything he's done, uh, the, his ministry, unless he was away with the disciples, teaching them, nurturing them, everything he's done, everything he's spoken, he's done in, in the public sphere. Nothing has been hidden uh, from anyone, uh, but he has sought to to bring the truth uh, into the in, into the fray. Yeah, so Jesus is owning it, right? He's right there with them. And Annas says in verse twenty four of that passage, sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest, his son in law. So now Jesus is standing before the high priest, the the most influential, powerful religious leader of the Jewish faith. And for this, we skip over to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And let me pick it up at verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, again, is made up of half Pharisees, half Sadducees. There were like 70 of them or so in any given year. And it says the whole Sanhedrin, they together were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They weren't looking for the truth. They were looking for results. Matthew 26, verse 60, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared This fellow, Jesus, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, the Sanhedrin's like within eyeshot of the temple, and it was a big, massive structure, and so these guys are going a little bit out of their mind when Jesus had made this statement, he's going to destroy the temple. We now know, right, there's another meaning to that his own body, and it would be rebuilt and resurrected in three days. But in fairness, I, they, they were looking at the, the language that Jesus spoke, this temple, and they're looking at this huge, massive structure that took a long time to build. In fact, they say that in verse 62, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus said, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Clearly, here Jesus uh, been saying, "Yep, that's who I am." 
In fact, they knew what he was saying, that he was the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who's coming from heaven with the Father. They knew it so clearly that verse 65 says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. What do we need any more? Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He is worthy of death. And then over in Luke 22, 66 to 71, I mean, the Sanhedrin gets together and they ask him the question straight up. And let me just pick it up in Luke 22, verse 70. They ask Jesus, the Sanhedrin does, are you then the son of God? Giving him another out. He replied, you say that I am. I think elsewhere it even says, I am. In this moment, when Jesus knows that the answer that he gives will be life or death for him, he chooses the, the path of truth, that he is indeed the Son of God, that he is indeed the Messiah of God, knowing where it will lead. What does this teach us today about how we are to view Jesus. I mean, we're, we're deep into this study. Many, many weeks, only a few weeks left. We've been looking at the life of Jesus. As we look at what Jesus is proclaiming here, really, as he's being arrested and on the path to be crucified just hours later, he proclaims that he's the Son of God. What does this say about us as followers and how we view Jesus? Yeah, Jesus' words... Ultimately, he's giving himself to the cross in this moment when it appears, as, as Jesus had said, when, uh, when they came to arrest him, I believe in Luke 22, Jesus speaks to the, the, the notion that in this moment, darkness reigns. And so Jesus yields himself, in essence, to this darkness. And yet at the cross, when it seems like darkness has won, Jesus will triumph uh, over the darkness and and I think in that, in understanding the, the nature of God's uh, sovereign hand, um, in the presence of what what appears to be darkness, uh, yielding ourselves ultimately to uh, to pick up our cross and follow after Christ, because Jesus has ultimately, and I know we'll talk about this more in coming podcasts, obviously, but I can't see I, as I read these words, I'm. I can't help but go to the reality that Jesus has triumphed over death and that in him giving himself to death, that he would triumph over death, that he would triumph over uh, uh, sin um, and death in our own lives. And that sets us free uh, to live for him, not counting the cost to, to our own lives. And, and that, that means that I'm, I'm willing and wanting, desiring, longing to bear uh, the identity of Christ upon my life, uh, knowing that God, uh, that God's sovereign hand uh, is upon all things, and simply learning to entrust myself uh, to God's sovereign plan, uh, knowing that He is working all things for the sake of my good and for the sake of His glory, and that 
the, that Jesus who has died for me is not going to abandon me at a later date, which then gives me this freedom, which then sets my heart ablaze with the love of Christ that I can step into this light, that I can step into this life, I can step into to whatever uh, trial, tribulation, uh, whatever it might be, even the blessings of life, all things governed by this reality. Yeah, be, as I look at this, I, I'm, I'm saying Jesus had this moment when he's being pushed, are you the son of God? He could have said no. And yet we have some people today who are... Christians who would say, nah, I don't think Jesus was really the son of God. I don't think he was really, you know, God in the flesh. <laughs> and and the, the truth is, this was the moment when Jesus could have said, no, 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 people misunderstand. I'm not, I'm none of that. I'm a prophet. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm teaching the way of God. You guys are, he could have still confronted them. You're wrong about the way you're doing it. But he doesn't take the escape here. In fact, he clearly says that in other places that you've come after me because I've said I am the son of God. So we need to embrace this. I mean, this, yeah. this is the moment. This is where it turns. And right here, he could have said, no, no, you, I'm not the son of God. I'm, I'm not God. Yeah. I'm just a guy. I'm a prophet. And he didn't. He, he embraced it. And we have to, too. We, yeah. don't, we don't have the option of saying, well, he, you know, he's not really all that. Yeah. And there's multiple paths. There's multiple gods. And he, or he's not a god. And like, th- that's heresy. Yeah. To deny the centrality of, of Jesus Christ for uh, salvation, um, that's something that's not Christian. That's not being a follower uh, of Christ. Jesus has clearly stated that he is the way, the truth, the life. He is the only resurrected Messiah. He is the only one who has defeated the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death. Um, yeah, the notion that somebody would say, well, I, I follow Christ and yet deny his divinity, deny his physical resurrection, uh, deny his lordship, deny his word, um, to, to deny the, the, the truth of Christ, is, is some, again, it's something, but it's not Christian. So the religious authorities wanted to pin him to the wall for being the son of God. The civil authorities didn't care about that. They were interested whether he was the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, if he was going to threaten their political position and the Roman government. So for that, we pick up the civil trials, and it's Pontius Pilate, the well-known Pontius Pilate, who first questions Jesus from a civil perspective, and it's in Luke 23, beginning in verse 1, then the whole assembly, that is the religious assembly, rose and led him off to Pontius Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, which he didn't, and claims to be Messiah, a king. They're not at all talking about the Son of God accusations they were just throwing at him because they know that Pontius Pilate wouldn't care at all if Jesus thought he was a god. Yeah, there's lots of gods in the Greco-Roman culture and like whatever. But verse 3, Pilate grabs a hold of this and asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Again, 
Jesus had a moment when he could have said, no, I'm, I'm the son of a carpenter. You know, I'm, I'm a prophet. I'm a lot of things, but I'm not the king of the Jews. But his response is, you have said so. Real similar to the, you say that I am the son of God. You have said so that I am the king of the Jews. Then Pilate tries to let him go, and the people get stirred up, and Pilate sends him off to Herod, and Herod wants him to perform some magic tricks, and he doesn't do it. And he ends up back with G- with Pontius Pilate, and Pilate, you know, the story it just moves on in Luke 23. Pilate's like, I'm done. This guy's fine. Let, let him go. He's, he's done nothing to deserve death, he says, down in verse 15. But the but this crowd was stirred up. They were stirred up by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were stirred up, and they cried out, crucify him. Down in verse 21, crucify him. And still, Pontius Pilate, like, what's he done? What crime has he committed? And they pressure him into crucifying Jesus. And then Pontius Pilate does it. I mean, he, he's the one that hands him over and signs his death warrant. So we, we've kind of gone from this religious trial to this civil trial, and it's all embedded with one another. Um, what's, you know, this is now that the night is turning into the wee hours of the morning, and now it's early morning when the condemnation finally comes down. What's happening in Jerusalem at this moment in time? Yeah, every everything's stirred up to the point to where the crowd ultimately forces Pontius Pilate's hands. He, you know, as he says, he's going to wash his hands of all of this. One one of the things that that really grabs me here, though, is oftentimes when we look at this passage and we see the crowd yelling, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" The thought immediately goes to you know several days earlier when Jesus rides into town on the back of the donkey. And all the folks come out to welcome him. They're waving their palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna. And, and there's that, you know, that, 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 common, uh, that, that common thought that those, you know, yelling Hosanna on Sunday are now yelling crucify him. One of the things that also grips me about that is I always wonder how many of those yelling crucify him on, on Friday are all ultimately receiving him in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. You know, I always, uh, it's one of, it's one of those things that kind of grabs at me because as Jesus is on the cross, you know, he makes the the comment, uh, forgive them father for, for they know not what they do. And we constantly see his, in essence, his arms extended for the sake of the people, even those, uh, even those sentencing him to death, even those yelling, uh, out crucify him. And so caught up in, in the trial, I'm I'm constantly mindful of as Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah, he's persistently got his arms extended to those before him, welcoming, uh, you know, wanting them to come into relationship with him. Hmm. In- including Pontius Pilate, if he would have given his heart. Yeah, I, I mean, and you think about the 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 dream. I know the dream that his wife has, right, right? Right. And you see, in essence, it, almost this means of God seeking to convict them in the midst of all of this. I I want to say this in our moments remaining that the third phase I want to talk about today would have been the hardest. It it was one thing for all of the religious establishment to turn on Jesus. It was 
another thing for the civil authorities to condemn him. But I have to think the hardest thing about the night would have been his closest friends abandoning him and fleeing. Judas betraying him, Peter denying even knowing him, and the Bible says all the disciples abandoned him and fled and ran away. And he was utterly alone in the midst of this. And I I just want to take this moment and and say that I think for me, Friendship is so is so important. Relationship, family, good friends, so important that I would imagine this was the hardest part of the whole night. Thursday night going into Friday morning. That yes, he's he was God in the flesh and he he knew this was coming, but still to endure that that level of of abandonment. Because, you know, when you go through something hard, it's really good to have a good friend at your side that's going through it with you or encouraging you. He didn't have that. Yeah. And, they, and, and they to, turned on him. Yeah. And to that end, I mean, when he goes up to pray in the garden and calls those dudes up to pray with him, you know, in his this moment of just sheer humanity, weakness, as he's confronted with the reality of the cross to come. He calls them to pray. I mean, he's calling them in essence at that time, uh, while there's a sense of this, you know, ongoing life of prayer that he's commanding, there's a sense of like, pray for me as he goes to pray. And, uh, and they all fall asleep. I mean, ultimately, in essence, imaging the abandonment that's about, about to come. And then Judas at his betrayal, uh, when he betrays Jesus, he greets him with this, you know, expression, this display of affection. He gives him a kiss. He gives this outward display. Maybe in some ways, in his own mind, he thinks he's going to cover up the betrayal because all of a sudden, as he's identifying Jesus, everybody comes in and he can kind of look around and be like, what's going on here? But, uh, but he covers his betrayal with the affection, this affectionate display of, of this kiss, which really just reveals the hypocrisy of his own heart. And I think about that in the lives of, of the Christ follower, those, the, the idea of I'm going to, in some ways, outwardly display or claim affection for Christ, and yet there's this persistent betrayal that characterizes my life and, my, and an unwillingness, potentially, uh, for some self-proclaimed followers to, to deny the Word of God, to deny, uh, to, to truly uh, fellowshipping uh, with with Christ, um, wanting to to hunger and thirst after His righteousness, wanting to be identified intimately with Him. Those who simply kind of pay lip service to a relationship with Jesus, much as Judas did, as he goes to Jesus and shows this again, this this intimate display of affection, this greeting, and ultimately it just reveals the hypocrisy of his own heart. Yeah, I, that's that's. So well said. I would say that was the hardest part of what Jesus had to go through that night and that, that, that next day, including the torture, to, to know that those who were so close to him had walked away. I mean, he, he's sovereign. He, he's God. He, he, there's, there's a future, and he'd, he was going to give them that future after he raised from the dead, and they were going to be the ones to lead the church and, and all that. But in the moment, I would say, when even your closest friends 
walk away and you're left standing alone. Pretty, pretty tough to do. Well, next time we're, we're actually going to take a look at the crucifixion of Jesus, at the crucifixion itself and the, the moments leading up to that and the moments right after that. Because we're coming to this moment, this, this is it. History hinges, I believe, on the, on the cross, on, the, uh, on that hill where Jesus died. So, if you, folks, if you'd like to learn more about all of that, we encourage you to find the app, our church's website, fishersumc.org, and you'll look for the Life of Jesus link, the app that we have for this. And you can begin to do some deep study yourself on who Jesus is and, and what he went through as he was being led to crucifixion and he was crucified. We'll talk more about that next week. Until then, may God bless. Thank you.